This podcast is brought to you by GuestLogix, the leading global provider of ancillary-focused merchandising, payment, and business intelligence technology to the airline industry. To learn how GuestLogix can elevate your ancillary revenue potential, visit www.guestlogix.com. Last week, we talked about how U.S. airlines are universally doing well. In fact, the 10 biggest U.S. airlines combined posted a $5 billion profit in just the second quarter alone. But the story in Europe is less monolithic. Monolithic. Good word. Thanks. I looked it up. But that's what it was, or rather what it wasn't. Amid last week's bushel of earnings reports, European carriers had very different stories to tell. In the U.S., everybody had an operating margin of 13% or higher. But Europe's carriers were all over the map. IAG had a 9% margin. Ryanair had an 18% margin. Swiss was 13%. For Lufthansa's passenger unit, it was 6%. And Air France KLM limped home at 3%. So how did European airlines perform in the second quarter? The answer is complicated. But we're going to try to sort it out on this week's edition of the Airline Weekly Lounge, which is coming up right now. Welcome to The Lounge. I'm Jason Cottrell, Vice President at Airline Weekly. And I'm Seth Kaplan, Managing Partner at Airline Weekly. So Europe had some good news, some bad news, and some ugly news in its second quarter earnings. Let's start with the good news, which belonged to Ryanair. 18% margin, and they did it without the benefit of falling fuel. They sure did quite a story. You know, it really starts back in the fuel run-up last decade, sort of peaking in 2008. Investors were actually on Ryanair's back at the time blaming it for not having hedged fuel more aggressively at the time. I mean, look, at the time, it seemed like fuel hedges were basically equivalent to a discount on fuel. Nobody was stopping to think that those same fuel hedges could actually come back to haunt an airline when fuel prices were declining. So Ryanair, under all that pressure back then, started hedging fuel much more aggressively. That did cost them some back in 2009 when fuel fell and they had wrong way hedges. And here we are again, fuel prices falling in Ryanair, which locks in the majority of its fuel needs going into the future, in this case at prices that ended up being higher than what it could have paid uh, on the open market. Yeah, once again, stuck paying essentially more for fuel than it had to. Of course, not alone in the world and having done that. At the same time, of course, trading in weaker currencies, you know, whereas U.S. carriers, well, especially an unhedged carrier like American, but even its competitors, if they had wrong way hedges, getting the benefit of, uh, you know, paying for fuel in those strong dollars. But yeah, Europe's airlines, Ryanair, certainly no exception, uh, trading in weaker euros. And so sure enough, it all added up to a fuel bill that didn't fall at all, partly to be sure, in addition to everything I just said, simply because Ryanair is growing. So it's it's burning a bit more fuel. And, you know, it wasn't all a cost story there. And certainly a big part of their profits is that Ryanair, uh, although the lowest cost airline uh, in, in Western Europe still, is an airline that's focusing a lot more on revenue than it once did. They have this always be getting better campaign, they call it. 
an airline, yeah, chasing revenue, chasing corporate revenue, especially. They used to laugh at the idea of doing that, laugh at the idea of accepting any cost or complexity at all. And now, although certainly, uh, you know, they haven't lost their low cost ways, they're doing some things to be more friendly to corporate travelers. In fact, Michael O'Leary, the, you know, the very colorful CEO of Riot Air, said not too long ago that if he'd have known uh, being nice to customers could be so profitable, he would have done it long ago. <laughs> and things could still get better for Ryanair and EasyJet for that matter, uh, because the low cost model tends to do better in a cheap fuel environment, right? Yeah, it, it does. And uh, there are a couple of reasons for that. Now, you know, if you think again of a year like 2009, I mentioned a moment ago, fuel prices were falling. Well, at that time, also the global economy was just a mess. And so what you had were a lot of people who, you know, maybe previously shunned low cost carriers trading down to those airlines, willing to travel with low-cost carriers. I'm talking not just about leisure travelers, but about corporate travelers, too, in some cases whose employers said, hey, I'm sorry, uh, you know, you're going to be flying EasyJet if that saves the corporation money and basically keeps us in business through this recession. So you had that. Uh, then you also had the other part, and this is what still applies now, even with an economy that's, of course, much healthier now than it was in 2009. And that's the fact that when fuel is cheaper, the cost advantages of low-cost carriers uh, simply way more than they do when fuel is expensive. So, so let me explain. You know, fuel is basically the, the great equalizer. I mean, all airlines pay for it. And it's not as if one kind of airline business model has any real advantage. I mean, sure, you can you can hedge fuel and, and, and win the bet when fuel is rising in cost. But an LCC can do that just like a legacy carrier can. But it's those non-fuel costs, what you might call the more controllable costs, uh, that when fuel is cheap, all of a sudden those costs simply make up a bigger percentage of the overall cost pie. So all those things that LCCs do, you know, from turning the plane around more quickly to uh, you know, saving on distribution costs with, in many cases, you know, more direct distribution, all of that, those costs are simply a much bigger percent of the cost base now. And so sure enough... Uh, those airlines simply have a greater overall cost advantage. You can imagine when, in the case of some LCCs, some of the very lowest cost carriers, the fuel costs made up almost half of their overall bill. Well, those other costs, all the great things they were doing to save money, it just didn't matter as much. Now, they matter more. A big advantage for LCCs in, in this cheap fuel environment. Okay, another LCC, an ultra LCC, is uh, Wizz Air, and they performed well, too, despite a 25% spike in labor costs. 25%, yeah, but it was a spike that airlines might call you know, a good problem to have. A lot of that spike in labor costs at Wizz Air actually related to profit sharing. And so, you know, if you're going to have a cost, uh, you like one that's tied to, tied to revenue, tied to profit. And certainly uh, that's one of those costs that airlines are, you know, ha happy to pay, happier at least than other costs. Uh, Wiz, uh, clearly doing, uh, doing a lot right. They are, as you mentioned, an ultra LCC. Uh, they're one uh, that, uh, although they're Shares now trade publicly. Uh, they come from the Indigo Partners family of ultra LCCs. You basically have two of these giant LC ultra LCC families in the world. The other, uh, Irlandia Aviation, which you know, basically the Ryan family, uh, and uh, and then Indigo Partners, which had backed Spirit's very successful transformation, Wizz Air, uh, Volaris, and some others around the world. Irlandia behind, uh, uh, in addition to Ryan, or certainly uh, initially the the Viva family, Viva Aerobus, Viva. Columbia. 
uh, airlines like those. And so, yeah, Wiz from the Indigo family uh, doing what a lot of ultra LCCs around the world have done, which is uh, make a lot of money in all the ways that the others do it. You know, the very high density seating, charging extra for absolutely everything except, you know, safe air transport and so forth. Uh, uh, a very successful airline in a part of Europe that uh, over the past decade or so has grown more rapidly than others. The uh, central and eastern part of Europe where uh, where you have those emerging economies. Okay, so that's the low cost carrier perspective. And that perspective is one where they are doing pretty well. Uh, switching to Europe's big three airline groups, I'm talking about Air France, KLM, Lufthansa Group, and IAG, which is British Airways, Iberia, and Vueling. So if low-cost carriers are doing great, the big three must all be doing lousy, right? Not really, or, or at least to varying degrees. You know, you, you mentioned earlier in a different context, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, not to call anybody ugly here, but certainly Air France KLM did the worst of the three. They had previously reported there's an airline exposed to you know, labor unrest and, and a lot of problematic parts of the world, an impressive African network that helped make them a lot of money uh, in recent years. But all of a sudden, that's become rather than an asset a liability. Uh, you know, you think of a place like Angola, a market with uh, you know, very constrained service, where if you had flights there uh, during the oil boom, that was a good place to be. Well, now all of a sudden, not so much uh, true. Also, uh, for example, South America, where they have a fair amount of service. And then if you look at Lufthansa, which reported just last week, kind of a lot of the same exposure, similar story with labor unrest. And uh, yeah, Africa Asia, some of the markets problematic there for Lufthansa. Uh, but IAG, as you mentioned, the parent company of uh, British Airways, Iberia and Whaling, uh, doing reasonably well. Uh, not as well, to be clear, as, as most of its North American peers. Uh, I mean, it still is an airline with a lot of the problematic exposure, but uh, certainly doing better than uh, Lufthansa and especially quite a bit better than Air France KLM. So let's talk about IAG's relatively good performance. It's interesting how so many things had to go right for IAG to have merely a pretty good quarter. In fact, it's a long list. Things like being exposed to the pound rather than the euro. The relatively strong UK economy, as well as the rising Spanish economy, both being good places to do business right now. Also, being slightly more insulated from the Gulf carriers helped. They've had no labor strikes, unlike Lufthansa and Air France, and they have a lot of exposure to the red-hot North American market. So how much of this is luck, or is this visionary leadership? Yeah, a little bit of both. Uh, you know, the old saying, of course, better to be lucky than good. But in the airline industry, you kind of need to be some of both, and and IHE really is. Uh, you know, interesting one thing, uh, you know, that they're they're not making big bets, for example, on on new low cost units. I mean, look, they they have one that's doing just fine, uh, Whaling, but uh, you know, Lufthansa and Air France kind of scrambling to start, uh, respectively, Eurowings and uh, and uh, you know, Transavia, new service uh, existing units, but uh, vastly expanded service. And and IAG is not doing any of that. And l let's be frank, uh, that that kind of experiment, those are things that airlines have tried over the years and haven't had a lot of uh, success. We'll see if Lufthansa and Air France KLM are are able to pull it off. But yeah, part of it is simply that IAG is in a better place. Uh, you mentioned the currency. Uh, you mentioned the greater exposure to uh, North America. That's that's a very big deal for them. You know, they've got London, which is just a phenomenal market. And so much of their business 
is is connecting London with uh, points in the U.S. jointly, of course, with American Airlines, which is doing rather well. And so you'd have to say, uh, if anything, uh, probably a little more luck. Uh, Air France, KLM, and, and Lufthansa are are well managed airlines. You know, the, these are uh, you know people who have a track record of success. Uh, although certainly you have to give them credit; uh, they've they've made brilliant strategic moves. Uh, the turnaround at Iberia, in particular, uh, you know, that's not an accident. Uh, you know, they, they, they took an airline that was in very bad shape and really slashed its costs and have turned it into something that's uh, uh, that's quite a profit center right now. So you have to give them a little bit of credit. But uh, but they also do benefit from some things that are beyond their control in the same way that uh, their competitors, their friends, KLM and uh, Lufthansa suffer from some things that are beyond their control. And as we said earlier, Ryanair and Wizz Air are doing well. So if the low-cost carrier is the business model of choice in Europe right now, IAG has that tool in its shed as well. How much did Whaling help IAG's numbers? Yeah, it's it's uh, long been a, a good part of the company. Uh, right now, everything's more or less going well in terms of the major business units. But uh, if we look back just a couple of years when Iberia was a mess, Whaling was what the company could really count on alongside uh, what was working at BA already to lead it to profitability. An interesting story because I mentioned there uh, just a moment ago, you know, these low cost carriers within a carrier, just just a real awful track record around the world. The difference here is that Whaling uh, already existed when IAG took full control of it. Uh, it had launched a number of years back. Whaling had, had sort of backed a competing startup carrier. A low cost carrier, those two merged. It was Click Air and Whaling. And subsequently, IAG ended up in, in full control uh, of what we know today as Whaling. So basically, they bought something that was already very successful in its own right and allowed it to uh, keep operating in, in some respects independently, but they are able to get uh, just the right synergies from it, not interfere too much uh, in terms of trying to merge it into the rest of the operation, but uh, really just, just take the good from it and use it to the advantage of, of the whole company. Uh, but again, an airline we're talking about that was rather successful even before it became part of IAG. Very different in that regard from uh, what Air France, KLM, and Lufthansa are doing by really doubling down on units within those airlines, you know, in their case, Transavia and, and Eurowings, that, uh, you know, that, that aren't doing all that well at the moment. Going forward, what do you see for IAG? Good things? Well, you know, certainly uh, if, if in terms of the near term and, and the midterm, if things remain rather strong across the transatlantic as they are, albeit off their off their highs. Uh, yeah, you know, they should continue doing well. But of course, uh, oh, yes, uh, they're in the process of buying Aer Lingus, which in its own right is a rather profitable carrier. Another one of those that's you know not not one of the most profitable in the world, but certainly doing rather well. And, uh, you know, airline mergers are never easy, but we're looking at a company now that's done a good job uh, of integrating, as I said, taking just the right parts of, of you know, Whaling and Iberia, but giving them enough autonomy to keep doing, uh, you know, the things that they should be doing on their own. Um, and, and so if they're able to pull off the same trick with Aer Lingus uh, and bring it under the fold and, and let's be honest, you know, have, have one less competitor across the Atlantic, something that, by the way, will, will also benefit its competitors. All airlines flying across the Atlantic will be uh, glad to see Aer Lingus as an independent competitor go away. Yeah, no reason to think uh, the future won't remain bright. 
if things remain as they are, uh, you know, the situation where fuel is cheap, the a lot of the commodity driven economies where Air France, KLM and Lufthansa have more exposure continues suffering. Uh, you know, if fuel prices were to rise a lot, you know, including crude oil prices rising a lot and all of a sudden fortunes change for global economies and you want to have more of that African exposure again and South American exposure and uh, maybe not as much North American exposure, well, then uh, things indeed could rebalance and, and uh, IAG could find itself looking for answers in the same way that its competitors are now. Okay. We discussed Air France last week, so we'll leave them be for now. Um, let's talk about Lufthansa. The airline group turned in a rather mediocre quarter despite Swiss's 13% operating margin. For Lufthansa, nothing really went all that well, right? Yeah, you mentioned it. You know, Swiss has really been, gosh, uh, you know, you ask yourself where this airline group would be without Swiss because it has been the crown jewel uh, for years at this point. Yeah, double-digit margins, uh, really one of the healthier airline units, uh, not, not only in Europe but in the world. Um, because yes, uh, a lot else is not going right, uh, including even at the at the core airline itself, Lufthansa. You know, a few years ago, Austrian was really struggling. Uh, Lufthansa, the branded airline itself, was was doing reasonably well. That's uh, not really the case anymore. You know, it, it, you have that one standout performer in the group in, in terms of large units, and um, and and that's Swiss. Um, you know, along with some other non-airline units, which do help the group profit. Lufthansa Technik, for example, actually does very well. Uh, so yeah, Lufthansa is looking for answers for especially its short-haul exposure. And that, by the way, you know, going back to what you asked about IAG, a big difference here. Uh, you know, IAG, so much of the airline is just long-haul out of London, not as exposed to a lot of what's going on within Europe, whereas Lufthansa has a vast short-haul network that it's still working to restructure. And so, uh, you know, you can also look at it that way, not just in terms of which units are doing better and worse, uh, in terms of the different brands, Lufthansa, Swiss, Austria, and German wings becoming Euro wings and so forth, uh, but just simply short haul versus long haul. And this is an airline still with a lot of short haul exposure. And when a reasonably large part of your network is competing against Ryanair, now, of course, chasing more corporate traffic, as we mentioned, and EasyJet, which has long been chasing corporate traffic very successfully, uh, it, it, it's, it's tough. And Lufthansa is still getting chewed up a bit by the Gulf carriers. Can you characterize that at all? They are. I mean, to varying degrees, airlines around the world are. But yeah, Lufthansa sitting there in the central in the center of Europe, uh, very much exposed to them and and the Gulf carriers. Uh, you know, one situation that's different with Europe from what it is in the U.S. is that in the U.S. for the moment, those Gulf carriers can pretty much do what they want. Uh, you know, there's no real restrictions yet, as long as they can you know get the gate, the slot, whatever they can they can operate to the U.S. Uh, not really the case in in Europe where you know they're they're fighting those Gulf carriers for more access to places like Germany. And, you know, in the airline industry, uh, uh, for all its complexities, there's there's one truth that I've never forgotten. Actually, Monty Brewer, a former Air Canada CEO, had, had 
uh, told me this in an interview way back in 2007. He said, you know, the things that matter most in the airline industry are oftentimes just the things that are closest to you. And, and it sounds like an oversimplification, but it's true in a lot of regards. And, and simply, the closer you are to the Gulf carriers, the more you compete for some of the same traffic flows. Uh, so, you know, flows to India and so forth, which are not terribly important to, let's say, the U.S. carriers, much more important to the European carriers. They're just a lot closer to volumes are higher. And the Gulf carriers uh, compete very vigorously for some of the same flows, just as they do for flows between oh, uh, you know, Europe and, and Australia, let's say. So uh, Lufthansa is exposed to a lot of that. Let's not forget, though, that in terms of the degree to which airlines complain about Gulf carrier exposure, one important difference, aside from just all the other true differences in exposure uh, between Lufthansa uh, and Air France KLM, and on the other hand, IAG, uh, is simply the fact that IAG is uh, partly owned by Qatar Airways, and, and so they have a shareholder that's a Gulf carrier. And so uh, whatever feelings they might have about Gulf carriers are going to be partly colored, not only by the competition and the exposure, but but the fact that that, that an airline like Qatar uh, owns part of them, whereas, you know, Lufthansa and Air France KLM aren't going to feel at all constrained about registering their complaints. With time winding down, we should mention Iceland Air. They posted a nice quarter, 10% operating margin. Iceland Air just enjoys really good geography right in the middle of the busy transatlantic market, don't they? They sure do. But, you know, certainly th this is one airline when you ask about uh, you know, luck versus vision, uh, an airline that uh, we can't call simply lucky because there are a lot of challenges, too, uh, to operating an airline it, where they do. I mean, first of all, they have a, a tiny local market, uh, you know, so uh, you know, the outbound demand from Iceland is small because the population isn't large. Uh, inbound tourism demand, it, it exists, but it's not a giant destination market. And so they've had to develop this really interesting connecting hub in Reykjavik. It's, it's a very well-run uh, operation, a convenient place to connect because it's not huge, but a whole lot of destinations from their dozens on both sides of the Atlantic. And so, yeah, they've done a good job despite not only that small local population, but also some real seasonal challenges. I mean, if you think demand to Iceland isn't limitless in general, uh, you know, try getting people to fly there in the middle of the winter. You know, aside from a few adventurers, folks who want to see the Northern Lights and so forth, it, it's hard to get people to go to some place where you know, the sun basically doesn't rise, and hard even to get you know people from North America to fly to Europe in the dead of winter, even for the connecting network. So they've had to measure uh, manage the seasonality. They've done it very well. They have a, a fleet of mostly older 757s, uh, aircraft that are mostly depreciated where they can park some of them in the winter, flex the airline up and down, and uh, you know be there when the people are, are demanding travel but not, uh, not fly excessively when they're not and sort of give back all the summertime profits in the winter. So they typically have very big profits in the summer, uh, modest wintertime losses. And when you add it all up, it's a surprisingly profitable airline. An airline, by the way, that's uh, in the process of, of getting a couple wide bodies, 767s, to serve a few markets that it can't reach with those 757s. And with that, we'll leave it right there until next week. Thank you, Seth. Always a pleasure. And thank you for stopping by the Airline Weekly Lounge. Luck and vision. If only everybody had both. <laughs>